All right, let's open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, and I want you to go to chapter 5. We're going to do a quick survey of, of one word in several books of the New Testament as a kind of a launching point, okay? So you'll see the title uh, of the series is Doing Decisions Right, and you'll see the, the title of this lesson, Resource Number One, A Sober Mind, Grasping the Big Picture of Decision Making. So if you're there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 6. And if you have it, follow along. Let, uh, therefore, this is Paul writing to that church in Thessalonica. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be, what's the word? Sober. Okay, you're going to see that word over and over, sober. Two verses later, but let us who are of the day. I want you to catch the contrast, okay? Let us therefore not sleep as do others. But let us who are of the day be sober. There it is again, putting on the breastplate of faith and love for a helmet and the hope of salvation. Um, go forward some pages to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now, this is a quality of a pastor given by Paul to Timothy. But we see the same word, verse 2, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. Look down to verse 11, the instruction to their wives, even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Turn the page to Titus. This is two books over, Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, verse 8. Same thing, Paul giving instruction to Titus, who's a pastor, up and coming, growing as a young man into ministry. So he says that ministers are to be lovers of hospitality, a lover of good men, and there it is again, sober, just, holy, temperate. Turn the page to chapter 2, or look across the page. Now he's going to instruct Titus that there should be some, some class ministry. There, there should be some breakdowns of groups of people, older teaching younger. If you wonder, where do we get the model of, of youth-based, young adult-based, children's-based ministry? This is it, okay? Titus 2.2, same thing with our discipleship ministry. The aged men should be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity and patience. Down to verse 4. That they may teach the young women, now this is talking about women, okay, uh, to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children. So he's talking about uh, men and women teaching young men and young women uh, to be sober. Titus 2.6, two, two verses down, young men likewise exhort to be, what's the words, two words, sober-minded, okay? Turn over to 1 Peter, three more, three more. I just want you to see the presence of this in Scripture. God takes this really seriously, what we're going to talk about tonight. So Peter, writing to people going through suffering and oppression and difficulty, and he says in chapter 1 and verse 13, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. And that's a picture that they would have understood. They dressed in that flowing, drapey clothing. And whenever you needed to get somewhere in a hurry, uh, or travel quickly, run from something or run to something, 
you would, you'd have to gather up that clothing so your legs could be free and you could run more freely. And so what, what Peter is saying is there's a mental state that is um, sloppy, it's, it's heavy, it slows you down. There's a spiritual state that slows you down mentally. And so he says when it comes to spiritual things, there's, there's this principle of girding up that, that sloppy thinking, the loins of our mind, and now here's the, the counter to it. When you, when you do that, you're, it's going to make you sober, okay? And hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Go to chapter 4, same book, 1 Peter 4. Verse 7, but the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober. Next chapter, chapter 5, verse 8, a verse you all know. The command again, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. So the word sober, I want you to see one more, and, and if you would turn, uh, it's not in your outlines, but turn to Ephesians chapter uh, five, same kind of principle, different metaphor, uh, same author, Paul, uh, not Peter, but Paul, and to a different group of people. Ephesians 5, verse 14, wherefore he saith, awake thou that sleepest. So one picture of, 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 of a lack of sobriety is the sloppy thinking, that the loins of your mind are not being girt up or tied up or controlled or directed. Another metaphor for, for sloppy thinking is, is sleepiness, okay? Spiritually uh, asleep, unaware, uh, not vigilant, not, uh, the, another word is circumspect, we'll see that in a minute. Awake thou that sleepest, arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. So being sober is about thinking clearly. It's about not just being serious, but there's a serious component to it. It's maturity. It's approaching uh, our lives with a sense of stewardship and accountability, and not flippantly, not quickly, not rashly uh, jumping into a decision process, okay? Verse 15, see then that you walk circumspectly. So we've studied this when we studied Ephesians, you know, walk, circle, circumspect, circum, that's all, all directions at once, being aware of all the angles and all the perspectives and, and seeing it from in different ways, not as fools, here's the contrast again, not as fools, but as wise, okay, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. So all these principles kind of take aim at the same kind of thinking. All right, with that, uh, foundation laid. Let me give you some introductory thoughts into this series. And this goes back a long ways for me. It began um, as a series to adults uh, 25 years ago, or maybe even a little more than that. And th it was well received at the time, and then I worked the principles and then began to teach them to young adults teens, upper, upper teens, 7, 18, 19, and then college-age students, single adults. And I, and I taught that for many years through the, through the grid of youthfulness, okay? Um, but what I want to do now the next 10 weeks is, is frame it back through an adult lens, okay? Because I had to relive personally all of these principles after, t per, I'll tell you more of the story later, but uh, the last time I taught through this, God was making me live it in real time. 
and it, was, it took on a 20-year-older view of surrender and what it means to, to implement all these principles. There are two components to this series that we're going to talk through. We're going to spend five weeks talking through what I would call decision resources, the things you need to have um, at your disposal to come up with a good decision, okay? Um, if I'm cleaning out my garage, I need a trash can and trash bags and a blower and a broom and, you know, I mean, I need the right resources. And so when it comes to making decisions, we need the right resources. So we're going to spend, there's five of them, and we're going to unpack one each week beginning today, okay? And then the last five weeks of this, we're going to talk about process. So what do I need to be equipped with to even go at decision-making? And, and I want you to think about skiing, mountain biking, climbing. Um, I'm halfway into this uh, movie about this guy that climbed El Capitan with no ropes. I think it's called Free Solo. Uh, freehand, I mean, just climbed the side of one of the most daunting mountains on the planet, uh, and it's an epic accomplishment, an incredible risk. Uh, if you think of some risky venture like that, you think of, of some activity that requires uh, you to be physically fit and, and ready for the demand and requires you to be prepared mentally and, and, and packed up with the right equipment, the right gear, the right tools, the right food. Uh, if you're going to be on a survival quest, if you're going backpacking into the mountains for a month, I mean, you would spend weeks and weeks preparing for that kind of, of venture. You would prepare yourself in lots of ways with lots of gear and lots of equipment. And part of this series is how do you go, diagnosing, how do you go at decisions and how do you uh, set up a, a, a toolbox or a, a resource pool that you're equipped now to make right decisions? I'd like to share a quick story that I may have shared with you before in a parenting series or in some other way, and if you've heard it, I apologize. But it, it bears repeating in, in this context. Um, at, it, it's the story of, Larry, of Lance's wedding and Larry riding in the car with me. And, and Larry, one, one day, we were either leaving the reception or the wedding or the rehearsal. I can't remember. But it was this moment where Larry just asked me this, this stark question about parenting. And he said, Dad, how's it feel to have, you know, one of the three of us now married? Do you feel like you're kind of done? Like, is it an accomplishment? How does it feel? And it, was, it gave me pause because I felt like it was more than just needed more than just a flippant answer or a quick answer. I felt like it could be a teaching moment, and he was trying to get into my head and heart to really understand how I would frame this moment as a parent. And so I took a minute and thought about it. I said, let me think about this for a second. And, and then I said, Larry, I'll be honest with you, I have really simple parenting goals. And I, I said, I think this is even going to surprise you to hear this, but my parenting goals since you guys were born are really, really simple. And he said, I said, so here's how I feel. And to tell you how I feel, I need to tell you what my parenting goals are. I said, there's three of them. At the end of my time of parenting, this is my goals. I want my children to love Jesus personally like I love him. Okay, so what I mean by that, Larry, is more than you going to my church or doing Christianity exactly the way I do it or listening to the music exactly that I like— um, that's, that's, the behaviors and the appearance are not the center of my target. The center of my target is a heart that is really in love with Jesus at, a, at a, a deep level and at a personal level, real level, that you have owned a relationship with him. 
and that you want to go through life with him, loving him, honoring him, and doing life his way. Because if you really love Jesus, then everything falls into place. If, if your life is driven by that love and that relationship, then everything else is going to kind of take care of itself. Your behaviors, your decisions, your values, your appearance, your lifestyle, all that is going to come in line with that love. So loving Jesus would be my number one goal. Num and, and by the way, you can't manufacture that, you can't force that. You can demonstrate it, and you can teach it, you can help your kids understand who he is, but they have to make a choice, and that drives us all crazy, because God gave them free will. The second goal I said to him is that you and Lance, I mean, you and Lance and Haley would have a biblical framework for decisions. And I said, you know, the rest of your life, you're going to be making decisions. And for much of your life, mom and I have made your decisions. Less so now that you're coming into college, and, and even less so as you go forward. But up to now, you know, basically we, I told my boys when they were seven or six years old, I said, let me tell you something. That hair on your head? I said, uh-huh. I said, it's mine. I own your hair. Don't ever tell me you want to do your hair the way you want to do it. As long as you're on my house and I'm over you in authority, I own your head, you know. <laughs> Um, and that sounds more power trippy than it really was. I was, you know, I, I was serious, but it was more loving than that, the way it came across, you know. And I never had a struggle with them wanting to do their hair differently. And, you know, their teenagers like, hey, dude, I, you know, I'm paying your food bill and your electric bill and your mortgage bill, so I cut your hair, you know. Oh, oh, you want a, you want a three instead of a four. Okay, we can handle that. You know, I had the trimmer and just, just zip it. That's all I did. So... I just said, you know, we've made your decisions up to now. We've made your educational decisions. We've made your financial decisions. Your life has kind of been floating forward on our decisions. But I don't want to make your decisions going forward. Uh, that would be uh, an overreach of my parental authority and presence in your life. I'd like to influence them. I'd like to counsel and, and be an advisor in your life. But I certainly don't want to control them. But I do really desperately want to give you a biblical framework. I, I, I need you to have a an understanding of the parameters of, of all of your options in life, how do you get it right? Uh, how, how do you go to the end of your life with fewer regrets and more celebration, okay? And so if I could pause here and tell you all where we're going, here's the goal. And we all have regrets. This series is not about your regrets. If you come into this series looking backwards like, oh, I wish I had known or I wish I had done this back then, you're going to misappropriate all of it, okay? Because regardless of your age or life stage, two things you can take away from this series, and neither of them look backwards, okay? Number one, the rest of your life, what will be your process for making decisions, okay? And number two, who can you give this to? What son, daughter, grandson, granddaughter, uh, what person can you disciple in these principles? So take notes, save the notes, and pass along the principles because they are highly transferable whenever anybody comes to ask you for advice. But here's the big takeaway and the motive for me to study these things and want to teach them. The motive is, at the end of my life, I want to be able to say I'm glad I did more than I wish I had. Okay. Um, or I'm glad I didn't uh, more than I wish I hadn't. Okay. So, 
again, all of us have regrets, and we could turn this around and, and go and guilt ourselves and, and, and let the devil jump onto our shoulders and say, uh, you should have back then. That's, that's counterproductive to the series, okay? Don't let the devil do that to you. Wherever you are, take the principles and go forward and make a decision that as we go forward, you'll appropriate this material so that you'll have fewer regrets and more reasons to celebrate. I'm glad I did that. I'm glad I didn't do that. Uh, I, I'm really glad that I didn't go that direction when I had these options. I'm glad for the option that I chose. Can you all think of a decision? Now, I told you not to look back, but now I'm going to tell you to look back. Can we all think of a decision we regret? Am I the only one? Okay. And I'll, I'll tell you some of them as I go through the series. But um, so resources and process, all right? And the first resource that we're going to unpack tonight is this thing of a sober mind. And it might sound simplistic. It might sound um, like, oh, really? You know, that's all there is to this. But I want you to just consider for a moment that the ordained, God-shaped leaders of the New Testament church, Paul and Peter, when they were writing their instructions to churches, continually came back to this theme for Christians. And not just young Christians, but the entire church body. The, the implication is that the, the tendency in decision-making, the drift in decision-making is to be guided by our emotions, to be guided by circumstances, and not to be guided by biblical principle, okay? The, the, the drift, the natural bent of all of our hearts is to be guided by some inner voice and a sober mind is going to step back and consider uh, the bigger picture and the long-term picture and really stop and think about the implications that we can't even really begin to comprehend. A sober mind is going to pause before a decision and not just default into this decision and not just to happen your way forward or you know, weigh out the pros and the cons. And what I'm going to teach you over 10 weeks is totally counter to the pros and cons approach to making a decision, okay? And, and be prepared because often the decisions that God leads us to make are often the, at the front end are often the harder thing. The faith thing is often the harder thing, okay? And... Um, Please do not think, I don't know the decisions that you all are dealing with right now and what you're up against. There's hundreds of them in the room, a room this size, okay? I don't know what is confronting you in the way of decisions. All I know is I'm burdened in my heart to, to get you to pause for a moment and look at it with a, with a lens that the Bible gives us that life otherwise wouldn't give us, Okay. And, and, and that our temptation is not to sobriety, not to vigilance, not to circumspectness. Our temptation is to emotions and a quick response to circumstances unfolding around us, okay? So the call to be sober is a call to pause and to look and very carefully assess a decision-making situation and to be very careful where I'm stepping, Okay. We're all venturing through life in a minefield. I mean, there are traps and potholes and, and, and buried explosives all around us. 
Years ago, and I borrowed this illustration from uh, Dennis Rainey, I, I picked up a book called Parenting Today's Adolescent. And Dennis is the author of that book, and this, was, this is an old book now. It, it was, you know, 20 years ago. Um, but at the time, it was, it was cutting edge, and, and his first story in the book was about him preaching at a family conference, and he set up on the platform, and I probably shouldn't say this because I want to do it sometime, but he set up all across the platform big bear traps, um, I mean, big bear traps, real bear traps, metal teeth, like, you know, chop your leg off kind of traps, right? And he set them, he had them set, had people that knew what they were doing set the traps all across the platform. And at the time, he had an elementary age son. And he called him up to the platform, and he took him off to the side, and he blindfolded him. And he left him on one side, and he came across to the other side, and he said, walk to me. And, and, of course, his wife is freaking out, and, and the room just, it's, I, when I did this illustration, this is what I did. I set the traps, I borrowed some traps, I found them from somewhere, um, and set them all across the platform. Lance at the time was about five, maybe six or seven, I can't remember. I always get the ages wrong. But I called Lance up to the platform, I had him standing there with me. Dana is literally freaking out on the front row, you know. Just the fact that he's anywhere within five feet of any of these traps is driving, every, and the room, it was like you sucked the oxygen out of the room. I mean, everybody in the room was sitting on pins and needles. And we stood there, and the visual was alarmingly powerful. And it was a parenting illustration of, of, of navigating and guiding our children. But the other, the other application that bears out of this is we're all kind of walking through that minefield of, of bear traps, and what looks good to us, we might step and find out, oops, that was a trap, that was a misstep, and that's a regret. Um, so what I did uh, is I blindfolded Lance, and I, I did what Dennis did, I'll, I'll tell, tell you my version of it, blindfolded Lance, and... Uh, I, I just sent him forward, and I said, okay, Lance, uh, listen to me. And he took a few steps forward, and he, he's getting closer to that first trap. And I said, Lance, stop. And he stopped. Now, I came up behind him, and I said, now, let's step this way one step. Okay, now let's step forward. And I walked right behind him, so he really wasn't in that grave of a danger. And plus, the traps were kind of old, and they looked worse than they really were, okay? They wouldn't have really done much damage to his leg, but, but they sure looked bad, okay? And, uh, and so I navigated him all the way through these traps at, until we got to the end, and then everybody breathed a sigh of relief, and I took the blindfold off. The idea here is we're all kind of in that same boat, okay? What I mean by you're blind, you're, 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 you're deciding blind, you don't know the outcomes, to any of your decisions. You don't know how they're gonna go. Now you can weigh pros and cons, you can stack up the odds, you can figure out the statistical probabilities. I think this is gonna go this way, I think this is gonna go this way, but we already said we've all got regrets. We, all, we already said we can all look back to times where we calculated statistical probabilities and found out, oops, we were on the wrong side of the stats, that the outcome wasn't what we expected it to be. Never did anybody get married and find out that marriage is exactly what they thought it was going to be. It's always more challenging. It's always harder work. It's always more difficult than you thought it was going to be. And it's always, that person is never as perfect as you think they're going to be, right? And it, it takes just a few weeks or months into marriage when you find out that marriage is not about your bliss. It's about 
your ministry to that other person because that person's really broken <laughs> and they hit it well during their dating. While they were winning you, they were hiding all that, right? Very well. And suddenly you find out, oh, you're broken, I'm broken, and we weren't put together because we're perfect for each other. We're put together because we're broken and we are God's grace to minister to each other in, the, in those hard places. So it changes your whole paradigm. A lot of people fall apart right there. I mean, just boom, they stepped into that place and it wasn't what they thought it was going to be. So our decisions, we don't know the outcomes, okay? And, and here's what, what haunted me and still does, frankly, in any major decision of my life. And I got to tell you, I still very much follow this process. This is uh, what drives my decision making, whether it's a church decision or a family decision or a personal decision. I, I'm, I look out at the landscape and I'm going, okay, of all these options, there's one that's the will of God. There's one. There's, there's a million that are not God's will. There's one step that God wants me to take in obedience to him, and there's a million that he would say, don't step that direction. Don't do that. Do this instead. And so a big part of the study is where do you place your core trust when it comes to decision? Do you trust your view of things? Do you trust your experience? Do you trust statistics? Or do you most trust the will, the leading, the direction, the clear confirmation of God as he's unfolding the steps of your life, which we'll come to that later. So we're all walking blind. Um, we all have some track record of regrets, okay? So let me give you the, the points for tonight. We have three, three thoughts out of this idea of a sober mind, why we should have sober minds. The first statement is this, we are decisional or decisional beings, okay? So God has set this life journey up this way. And I'm not going to get too deeply into the, the dichotomy or the, the seeming unexplainable, irreconcilable, you know, difference between God's providence and man's free will. All I can tell you is that they both are reality in Scripture, okay? Scripture has clear places where it shows me God is in control and God's providence rules over all of it, but Scripture gives me clear places where all throughout, not just for salvation, but in every area of life, God gives us decision points, brings us to places where he calls us to a process, and he calls us to make decisions. I just threw a few in here for you, a couple in here. Look at Psalms 1. This is a huge decisional passage. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Now there's an entire verse filled with decisions. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna walk that direction with that person. I'm not gonna re take that counsel to heart. I'm not gonna stand there in the presence of that. I'm not gonna sit there. Do you see the decisions? Okay, look at verse two. But his delight, that's a decision, is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate, another decision, day and night. And here's the outcome. Verse 3 of, of those decisions, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season, his leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. So there's so much here, but let me just touch on it and move on. God says you've got to decide your crowd, your direction, your walk, who, what you will listen to. You, and a blessed man, a healthy, a flourishing, a fruitful man is the man that says, I'm going to be very discerning. I'm going to be very sober. I'm going to be, I'm going to use discretion here. There's going to be some counsel I'm just not going to take. 
and not going to let it embed into me, not going to let it shape me. And there's going to be a lot of counsel, namely the Word of God, that I'm going to totally immerse myself in, and I'm going to meditate in it, I'm going to own it. And God says the outcomes of that life, that principled, biblical, decisional life, is you're like a tree planted by a, by a nourishing river of water. And, and what does a tree in a, in a fertile environment do? It, it, it grows deep roots, and it flourishes in health, and it bears fruit in its season. So here's one takeaway from this. God's, God's painting a picture that you're on a journey, and your decisions kind of determine the direction of that journey. Your life is a series of decisions strung together, right? That's really all life is, is just a, the consequences of a long series of decisions strung together, okay? And so God says there's a decision process that leads to a strong, planted, rooted life that's like a tree that's going to flourish and bear fruit in his season, okay? Now, this is counter to the world's decision process. The world's decision process is grab the immediate gratification, find the easiest path, the fastest path to your most uh, immediate pleasure, uh, desire, dream, fulfillment. Even if you have to cheat, even if you have to roll, steamroll over people and step on them and use them, get what you want as fast as you can get it, however you have to get it. This process is no. Um, choose your input, choose your meditation, commit yourself to truth, commit yourself to the path of, of God's principles and God's reality, and, and you're like a little seedling that's gonna grow near a fertile riverbank and over time, you're going to become an established tree, and you're going to bear plenty of fruit. In other words, God's going to fulfill the desires of your heart. God's going to bring fruitfulness, but it happens in a slow-growing process over the duration of life. And so often, we're in such a hurry to find or construct our own answers that that's what drives our decision processes. I've got to find the fastest, easiest path to, my, to the answer to my question, okay? And God says, no. Sometimes the slower path, sometimes the deeper path, sometimes the long-term, more fruitful path, instead of the immediate lucrative answer or the immediate self-gratifying answer, um, choose, the, choose the edify and the fruitful and the, and the long-term strength path over the immediate gratification path is what he's saying. And that takes this, this what we're talking about, this sober mind, okay? Um, Proverbs 8, God says, those that seek me early shall find me. Okay, I just want to connect that to that sober mind that's going, I need God. That's a person that's waking up every day saying, as I live my life, I'm making decisions, and I need God involved in these decisions, okay? We make a wide variety of decisions in our lifetime, and I want to uh, list them for you. Maybe you can write the list down fast, but uh, just... To, to, to strengthen our soberness, okay, to encourage you to pause before you make a big decision and really look at this, okay? Think about the decisions we make all the time. We make educational decisions about our personal development, and younger people more frequently are making educational decisions. We make vocational decisions, career, work, job changes, the development of career, we make relational decisions, dating, friendships, who are, who's my crowd? And, and by the way, you're always influenced 
by those people. So relational decisions are who will influence me, who will I influence, who will I grow to be like, uh, who will I be an acquaintance towards, but, but who will I open my heart in a deeper way towards and, and extend to them a deeper kind of influence. So there's relational decisions. Uh, fourthly, we make familial decisions, marriage, parenting. Who will I marry? How will I approach marriage? Uh, how many kids will I have? When will we have them? The timing, all of that. And sometimes it's not even our decision, right? Uh, fifthly, we make financial decisions. How, how will we steward our finances, our resources, what God's given to us? We make practical decisions in terms of lifestyle, the allocation of our time, this, the scheduling of our lives, and, and the pace of our lives. We make geographical decisions. Where will we live? Um, we make directional decisions. And I wrote down the word purpose next to this. In other words, what will I live for? What will be motivating me? What will be driving me? Okay? We make spiritual decisions. These have to do with my walk with Christ, how, I'm, how I understand Christianity, how I approach the Bible. What role do I give God in my life? Who do I view God to be in my life? So spiritual decisions. What, what place does Jesus have in, in my life or decisions? And then I wrote last, missional decisions. Missional decisions. And, and I just... To me, this is a little bit like purpose, but it's um, more connected to Bible, okay? Like, what will the mission of my existence be? From start to finish, what will the mission of my family be? In other words, are we just people paying bills and growing up and kind of existing, or are we a team that has a mission? I love what uh, Pastor Johnny said last week. I don't know if you caught it, because he just touched on it, but he, said, he talked about the word pro and vision. Provision, uh, not just meaning God providing, but but there, but the deeper meaning to the word meaning a shared vision that we come together. Uh, God's brought us together by His provision. In other words, we share a vision together. And and He was talking to me earlier about that personally. Just that um, the strong marriages that He's seen throughout His lifetime are those marriages that came together in mission. And they said, "We aren't just two people." coexisting, kind of pursuing separate dreams and uh, sharing some space and sharing some connectivity and raising a family together and paying bills together. We're going to be a team. We're going we're to see that God providentially brought us together to have a shared vision. Even if we have separate careers or separate uh, uh, gifts and abilities, we're going to somehow coalesce those. We're going to somehow collaborate together so that we use those things together to do the work of God. And when he was talking to me about that, I just couldn't help but thank God for Dana uh, because she's such a team player. Um, she is such a silent, quiet supporter. And so many of you are, so, so I'm not trying to elevate her. I'm, she's normally sitting down here, right? That's why I'm pointing down there. I'm imagining her sitting there. Um, but she's so often running from nursery to nursery and um, I, she's visiting Haley today, but I called her this morning. I said, could you, could you call this person? And and pray and try to encourage, and she's just always ready to step into that and willing, never complained about it. It just astounds me that she's such a team player in this. She never came to me and said, look, God called you to pastor, not me. So you do your thing and I'll do my thing. She's always said, look, I'm in this with you. We do this together. And frankly, I, I don't think I could do it without that kind of vision that we share. So, um, so that's what I mean when I say missional. 
I want you to write this statement down. We, me, I, okay, just start first person. I and others around me are subject to the long-term outcomes of my decisions. I just need you to stop and think about this. I and others around me are subject to the long-term outcomes of my decisions. You're making decisions today that impact you and everybody that you impact. Your very existence is the result of decisions that other people made over which you had no power, you had no control. And to me, looking at the sheer volume of decisions, okay, and all the ripple impact that just goes out and out and out beyond me for many, many years and generations, thinking about the, the, the nature of those decisions, and then just stopping and thinking about, wait a minute, I am gonna live with the long-term outcomes, and people I love are gonna live with the long-term outcomes of my decisions. That, these things alone should just enlarge your sobriety. I mean, should just kind of kick into gear that, wait a minute, I can't feel my way into this. I can't just flippantly, uh, you know, quickly, rashly make a decision and jerk everybody around me into my, my quick conclusion here. I need to have a sober mind, okay? A.C. Green, in his book, Victory, many years ago, A.C. Green was a Laker, an L.A. Laker, Christian guy, and he was writing in the book about um, the, the players all living in fornication, just rampant fornication, even the married players, uh, prostitutes and mistresses, and there's just, it was a part of the NBA lifestyle. But he was a Christian, and he refused to participate in that lifestyle to the tune of his players even hired, his, his friends on the team hired prostitutes, snuck them into his hotel room while they had him out for meals so that when he clicked the key and came into the room, they were there waiting for him. I mean, that's the kind of temptation he faced on the road. And he said he had absolutely committed to, to his wife and to the Lord that he was going to live honorably and he wasn't going to give into those temptations. Um, and then he said there came a time where the whole team, they had, they had the, uh, the Magic Johnson episode with um, with HIV, and he was diagnosed with HIV. And so now they're going to test the whole team. And, and AC said, I don't need to be tested. And, and that nobody believed him. He said, I, I, I'm faithful to my wife, and she's faithful to me. We don't need uh, a sexually transmitted disease blood test. And the team riled him and didn't believe him, and you got to be kidding. You never, you never one time. And he said, I've never one time. I don't need the test. And he said the freedom of that moment was, was, was worth all the money that he'd earn in a lifetime. And just, but here's what he said after he told that story. He said, every human being is given the power of choice. But once we make our choice, that choice often has power over us. And what he was saying is that these players had made their decisions, and now their decisions were dictating the outcomes of their decisions, the risk of HIV. But because he had made a different decision— he had a different kind of freedom and peace of mind uh, about him. So point number one is we are decisional. I want you to see point number two, and these two are shorter. We are dependent, okay? So we are decisional beings with complex decisions and complex outcomes, and we are going to become subject to those outcomes, which makes us come to this next conclusion that we are dependent beings, okay? Okay. 
Um, God said to Timothy through Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 6, wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. Look at verse 7. For God hath not given us the spirit of, what's the word? Fear. But of power and of love and of a sound mind. He, he references to the Corinthian church, by the way, um, the same problem with Timothy. He, he said, I think we read this on Sunday even. He said, I'm sending Timothy, but I want him to be with you without fear. And the references to this and his instructions to Timothy leads us to conclude that Timothy struggled with fear, okay? And it's hard for me to look at this list of decisions, educational, vocational, relational, familial, financial, practical, geographical, directional, spiritual, missional, and all the outcomes and all the people impacted by them and not go, whoa, that's scary. And so that brings me to this word dependent, that God kind of put us in this place of decision-making where we are walking blind into a minefield of traps and explosives um, with lots of potentially bad outcomes and good outcomes. And he calls us to be sober, and he wants us, the natural reflexive response of that heart is, oh wow, I need help here. Like, I'm like Lance and I need dad to step up behind me and tell me, stop, don't step another step, there's a trap. Step to the left, step one more to the left, now go forward. You know, we need that kind of direction in our lives. This is the, the goal, okay? And this is what God wants to do. He wants to direct your steps. He wants to order your path. And it is a very real, organic, day-to-day, uh, week-to-week, month-to-month thing that makes you like a tree planted by the rivers of water, okay? So we are dependent. Look at Psalm 37, 23. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. So when you look at the landscape of, of landmines and traps, and you think about God wanting to order your steps, it's not hard to then say, God, I want to delight in your way. Now again, some people have this idea that there's my way and God's way, and my way is awesome, and God's way stinks. You know, my way is really great. It involves, you know, financial success and pleasure and possessions and happiness. And God's way involves moving to a third world country and living in a hut and eating grubs and witnessing to, to, to half-naked people. You know, that's God's way, surely. No, 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 no. Your way is guaranteed regret. God's way is guaranteed blessing. His way is better, okay? So it's just natural to go, okay, I'm I need help here. Uh, even at the oldest and the most experienced point in life, I still need help going forward, okay? James 4, he giveth more grace, but God resisteth the proud and gives grace to the humble. So there's that idea of dependence again. What I'm trying to say, I'm trying to tie all this together to a sober mind. A sober mind says, wow, decisions are big. I can't just feel my way and just, just flippantly you know, flip a coin, and okay, we're doing this. This is big. This has eternal ramifications. This ripples out to generations. This, a lot of people are impacted by this decision. So, so I need to weigh this and be sober about it, but I also need to be dependent about it. I, I need to realize I could really step the wrong way here, and I need God to clarify and give me clear direction. Look at Hebrews eleven six. This one's held me together an awful lot. 
Without faith, it's impossible to please him. We'll come back to this verse later. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a, what's the word? Rewarder of them that diligently, what? Seek him. So all throughout scripture, you'll see this principle repeated, okay? Acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. Seek him, he will be a rewarder of those that seek him. Um, they that seek me early shall find me. So God's not hiding his will from you. Like, if you want to know it, if you want to get the decision right, he's not way off in a corner like Sherwin will be in a few weeks with Easter eggs say, saying, come and find it. You know, I've hidden it. See if you can figure it out. It's not a puzzle. But he, he, but he does say, look, you cast yourself in dependence on me. You seek me. You acknowledge me. I'll make sure you get it right, but, but I'm the key, Okay. You're not going to get it if, you, if, if you're not dependent, is what he's saying. Okay, so we are decisional creatures, we are dependent creatures, but I want you to see thirdly, and this one is what motivates me most to have a sober mind. We are destined beings. We are destined, okay? And I love this concept, I love this idea, and I only have a few minutes to unpack it. Look at 2 Timothy, and these, I think these are in your outline. 2 Timothy 1, 9, God, Jesus, God, who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works. In other words, we don't do anything to, to deserve a calling from God. We, don't do, we didn't do anything to deserve being valuable to God, okay? It's not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. So here's what I want to drive home to you. God's calling on your life was orchestrated in eternity past. How valuable and important does that make you to God's plan? How significant does that make your decisions to God's plan? Now, God is sovereign and providential, and he's, his will is going to happen with or without you or me, okay? Regardless of my decisions, I'm not going to derail God's plan. But my decisions, God's free will component of this, it's, it's, it's like within the boundaries of his eternal, providential, sovereign will, he's given me a, a role to fulfill and a choice to fulfill it or not. And what he's saying is, do you want in on the purpose would you like your life to have eternal significance? Because who wouldn't, right? Do you want to just survive and pay your bills and then die? Or do you want to leave a legacy that is eternal in scope? Because what God's saying is, I, I've given you a holy calling. I've called you with a holy calling, not because you deserve it, but because in my purpose, I've poured out my grace upon you and I've placed my value upon you. See, it's not that I'm valuable in and of myself. It's that God has decided to place value upon me, okay? And because of that, I can say I'm valuable, and my life is valuable, and my decisions matter. Look at what he said to Jeremiah. Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee, and before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nation. So in Jeremiah's case, he said, Jeremiah, I know you, I ordained you, I shaped you for this. This is your destiny. I've called you to be this. And by the way, it was a hard destiny, but it was, it, was his, it was his life. It was the life he was designed to live. And what I'm telling you is from this day forward, that's all that matters at this point, okay? You can look back at your regrets or you can say, from this day forward, I'm going to live in line with God's direction for my life because he's determined that as a destiny, okay? 
Jeremiah 29 and 11, we love to quote this. Most people take it out of context. I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you an expected end. By the way, that is prefaced upon him bringing Israel through a lot of hardship. So some people use that verse to say God's just ideas are going to make your life syrupy, delicious, and sweet, and wonderful, and no pain whatsoever. No, he's writing this to people that are going to go to Babylon and go through trials, and he says, but I know the outcomes. I'm going to bring you back, and I'm going to give, I'm going to fulfill the hopes of your heart. That's an expected end. That's what he means. So he's not promising bliss, a blissful journey. He's promising that his heart and his purposes are good, and that he can be trusted. Um, Psalms 139, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, I didn't put this in here, but the psalmist said, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Okay, Ephesians uh, 1, 3 through 12, and I won't read the whole thing, but you'll see these phrases in here that God has chosen us before the foundation of the world, uh, that we were uh, chosen according to the good pleasure of his will, uh, that it is according to his good pleasure which he has purposed in himself, and that we have been predestined according to his purpose. Now, I, I get it, there's this whole world of, of, of what are called Calvinists out there that apply that only to the, to the salvation choice, like, like this, this idea that God has predetermined everybody that's going to be saved and predetermined everybody that's going to hell, and that the decisions are already made, okay? That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does teach that, uh, that he knows my decision before it's made, but the Bible teaches that I have a decision to make, okay? So to try to reconcile that, nobody on earth can do it. They've been trying to do it for thousands of years. So uh, try not to go down that road to, to, to your own confusion or, or despair, okay? Just accept the fact, like the Trinity, we can't fully explain it. Accept the fact that God understands our choices, but he still gives them to us. But here's the takeaway. For everyone who's trusted Christ, that person is predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. There's nobody that ever trusted Christ that won't, be, be conformed to his image. In other words, absolute victory is predetermined, okay? So why wouldn't I want to walk through life as close to that predetermined path as I could in fellowship with God and, and experiencing his unfolding will for my life? So the concept of destiny really drives a sober mind. The concept of God has a plan for me, uh, for those choosing a college. He has a college where he wants me, for those choosing a spouse. He has a spouse that he wants me to marry. Uh, a relative of mine recently, I was having a meal with some family members and a, a distant relative, a young, young person said, I don't believe that God just has one person he wants me to marry. I believe that, um, that really there's lots of people I could choose from that would work out. And I said, well, let me tell you what's dangerous about that. I said, when you actually make a choice to marry somebody and you come to hardship in your life, you're going to go, well, you know, there's lots of other choices. There's no rhyme or reason. There's no will of God or purpose or plan here. There's no destiny here. Um, you're not necessarily God's perfect will for me, so I'll throw you away and go, go find somebody else. You know, I, I said, it's going to lower your view of, of, of the authorship of God in ordaining your steps. And I said, I'm not saying that, uh, that the principles of the Bible, I do think the principles of the Bible would work between any two spirit-filled people, okay? But then I looked at him and I said, but listen, whoever you marry is going to want to know that you believe that person is God's will for you. And I said, I can tell you this, I've never questioned uh, for a second 
that God brought me and Dana together and that Dana is exactly who God wanted me to spend my life with. And, and, if, and if I entertain a, a doubt about that, it would, it would change my whole framework of how I approached marriage. And, and, and he went, hmm, oh, yep, never thought of it that way. And I said, and by the way, you're going to want your wife to think you are God's will for her and, and that you're God's destiny for her. So it's a healthy thing. Let me close. All of this, all of these principles, look at them. We are decisional. Big decisions and lots of outcomes, lots of impact. We're dependent. We're walking blind. And we are destined. We've got a good God who's planned good steps to a good destination. All this should infuse us with a a mind of sobriety, a vigilance, a, 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 a desire of, I want to get this right, a desire to take every decision deeply, seriously, in light of our created purpose and call and our ultimate accountability. I read a devotion just this morning, and I want to close with a quote. This is Oswald Chambers. The title of the devotion is, If Thou Hadst Known. And he's quoting Jesus in Luke 19, 42, as he's looking across Jerusalem, and he's mourning that Jerusalem didn't believe in him. And he said, if you knew, if you only knew the things that God would have done for you. And by the way, Calvinists cannot explain that one, okay? Because what Jesus is saying is God would have, but you would not, okay? And a Calvinist can't swallow that because they, they, they go to, no, everything God would do is going to happen because he's sovereign. But no, God clearly says in Scripture there's some things he would have done, but for our decisions, okay? So Chambers said this, God goes direct to the heart with the tears of Jesus behind. These words imply culpable responsibility. God holds us responsible for what we do not see. Wow, that's a powerful convicting statement. Because the disposition has never been yielded, the unfathomable sadness of the might have been God never opens doors that have been closed. He opens other doors. That's why looking forward is my emphasis. But he reminds us that there are doors which we have shut, doors which need never have been shut. And then he says this, never be afraid when God brings back those memories. Let the memory press you forward is what he's saying. It is a minister of God with its uh, sorrow and chastening. God will turn the might have been into a wonderful culture for the future. So my takeaway from the quote was this, especially when it comes to a sober mind. The sober mind is the first resource you need because it's it's the one resource that's going to help you uh, see what God would have done, okay? And um, that's a good way to go through life. So we'll cap it there for today. So resource number one is a sober mind, sober mind, seriously viewing the landscape of our decisions. Let's pray, and we will be dismissed. Father, thank you for this time and for your word that teaches us the principle of sobriety, vigilance, walking circumspectly, being awake, not asleep, being girded up in the loins of our mind, not sloppy, not driven by emotion or desire, not approaching big decisions flippantly. God, help us to realize we are decisional and those decisions impact a lot of people. We are dependent, we're walking blind, and we are destined. You have a path for us to walk from this day forward. 
And God, I pray that we would let the, what might have been the regrets of our past only further deepen our sober approach to future decisions. Guide us in this series and in this class. Thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.